Welcome to the latest edition of At The Flicks, your one-stop shop for movie news, interviews and reviews. A belated Happy New Year to all our listeners, and against my better judgement, we start this year with Jeff's new mystery spot. Lads, look out. If the show continues after that, we pause and look back at some of the film industry people who passed in 2020. Then we change out of our lockdown pyjamas, except Neil, who assures us he wears none, there's an image here, (laughs) and into our tuxedos to present our alternative awards for 2020. After looking back, we look ahead to what films we're looking forward to seeing in 2021. Probably the same ones we wanted to see in 2020, if I'm honest. Finally, we have the first of Darren's Dash of the Year, which this month looks at I'm Your Woman and His House. Greetings and salutations. My name is Jeff, and my main cinema interests are political and horror movies. Now, despite Graham's intro worries, unfounded, let's start the year with some good news. Under new woke rules, actors can only play characters if they were born in the same country as the person they are portraying, which means Sherlock Holmes, King Arthur, James Bond, Robin Hood, Moses, Doctor Who and Luke Skywalker can in future only be paid by Welsh actors' result. <laughs> Luke Skywalker was Welsh. Absolutely. And Robin Hood wasn't. James Bond was Moses? No, seriously? Moses was Welsh? <laughs> Sorry, I missed that one. What the heck? Jeff, have another glass of wine. Hi, my name is Graham. My main cinema interests are sci-fi and comic book movies. Whilst it's never good to agree with Jeff's ramblings, it is positive news that Mel Gibson can never remake Braveheart and Tom Cruise can never, ever appear as Irish again. Hooray. Hi, my name is Neil, and I just want to say I wish I was born Welsh like Jeff. That's not what I wrote. Did you write (laughs) over this? Uh, hi, my name's Phil, and you can find more about my film taste via my blog page on Phil the Bear blog at wordpress.com. Hi, my name is Darren, and I like everything from sci-fi to musicals, Hong Kong gangster films to biopics, and I have a taste for cheap B-movies. And you can find out more about my music taste, including my favourite fight scenes of all time, at halfguarded.com. Time for a new feature from Jeff. I was made aware in advance what this is, and I can assure you, fellow contributors and listeners, it has been Gestapo approved. Is that not (laughs) Gaspaccio approved? It's like cold soup. Jeff, over to you. Thank you, Graham. Our version of Pretty Patel. Well, in fact, she's taller. Um, (laughs) I'm taller than you, Jeff. (laughs) So, guys, fingers on buzzers. I've got four hard movie questions for you. Let's see who knows the most about films amongst you. Any you can't answer will be passed over to our listeners. So, settle down. It's University Challenge. Can I tag team with Darren? Pardon? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's Phil Phil left with me. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, question one. Who wrote the music to Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan? John Williams. 
<laughs> Jerry Goldsmith. Okay, so there's the first question that's gone over to our listeners. <laughs> okay. Let's see if we have better luck with question two. The shark in Jaws was nicknamed Bruce. Why? Bloody hell. Because it was made in Australia. Because uh, it was um, made by a guy called Bruce. It never worked. Because it was no. another film. That's question two over to our listeners. Got the answers here. And Emma, if you're listening, you will almost certainly know. Please let us know. Question three. How many characters did Tom Hanks play in Cloud Atlas? Seven. Ooh. Four. How many timelines are there? Okay, so Darren and Neil have now tapped out, and they've Four. neither got it right, so that's six. Five. Who said six? Graham. Yeah, you, you, Graham wins that one. Uh, we narrowed it down, I think. <laughs> Um, Okay, the final question. The disco in that fantastic and famous 1978 movie, Thank God It's Friday, was called what? Never even heard of the film. Oh, the film is dreadful. The film is one of my... Blue Oyster Cult. Blue Oyster Cult. (laughs) Blue Oyster Cult. Club. Club. No idea. Okay. That's That's uh, Police Academy, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) No idea. Okay. So, listeners... There's three films out to you now. Who wrote the music for Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan? The shark in Jaws was nicknamed Bruce. Why was that? And the disco in the fantastic 1978 movie, Thank God It's Friday, was called what? And Graham wins (laughs) one challenge (laughs) by one point to nil. (laughs) Thank you, everyone, for your indulgence. And ritual humiliation. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's now time to start the solemn part of the show. The saddest part of being a film buff is seeing the annual long list of industry names who have passed away. Some of these people are household names, many aren't. The comfort we, as movie watchers, have is the knowledge that their work is preserved for future generations to see. It is especially sad in the year of COVID to see so many great people pass on. Partly a result of the many names we have seen this year, we've chosen to approach this section of the show slightly differently. We've picked five names which have had an impact on each of our film-going lives. Each person will talk about their selection and why their loss means something to them. Sadly, as the choice was so large this year, we will also include a brief roll call for other people who've enriched our lives through their talent. This is not meant in any way to diminish the achievements of anyone else who has passed on in 2020. They may not be mentioned, however, they are certainly not forgotten. Let's talk about the first of the five people we are eulogising. Over to you, Darren. John Saxon, 1936 to July 2020. You want a bet? John Saxon is best remembered for his role of, as Roper in the classic Bruce Lee film Enter a Dragon. Yet there is so much more to this man who worked throughout seven decades. Discovered by a talent agency when he was only 16, John Saxon spent the early part of his career either playing supporting early features such as John Houston's The Unforgiven in 1960 or starring in B-movies like War Hunt in 1962. Eventually, Mr. Saxon drifted into TV, 
where he guested on such shows as Virginian and Ironside, before starring in his own show, The Bold Ones, The New Doctors, for a couple of seasons. When that show ended, he got the opportunity to play a major role in the classic Enter the Dragon, where his anti-hero character, Roper, was surprisingly the one who takes out the big heavy bolo. Sadly, we never got to see Saxon and Lee go toe-to-toe. After Enter the Dragon, John Saxon's career took a turn towards genre pictures, such as Black Christmas in 1974 and The Nightmare on Elm Street in 1984. Saxon also worked with Roger Corman on a number of films, and is well known here especially to sci-fi fans for his role as the warlord Sado in the cult favourite Battle Beyond the Stars in 1980. A hard-working actor whose influences a wide range of films will live on. Other films of note were Joe Kid in 1972, The Electric Horseman in 1979, Wes Craven's New Nightmare in 1994, and From Dust Till Dawn in 1996. To me, John Saxon was one of those actors who had an amazing, steely presence, especially when he was playing a villain. As a kid, I often got to see him turn up in many TV series, such as Six Million Dollar Man, Knight Rider, Skarsky Notch and The A-Team, and he always shined, often as the body of the week. Personally, I'll always remember him as the most underrated sci-fi villain of all time, the Sado, in one of my favourite B-movies, Battle Beyond the Stars where he really threw himself into a smoke-cruel and chilling space warlord. I mean, for me, Enter the Dragon is, is definitely the role where you see the humour of the man come through. One of the things that Saxon really got up to do was comedy, and I think he had such a, a sense of humour. He was definitely over the top, but great fun in Battle Beyond the Stars. But for me, his part as the seemingly humourless villain of the piece in The Electric Horseman was great. You know, whenever he came on screen, you were drawn to him. It it would be interesting to see how a character like John Saxon would fare today, because he played many ethnic roles. You know, he was a a white Anglo-Saxon American actor, but he could get away with it because he had the complexion. In these days, I think he, uh, an actor of his ilk would find it very difficult. But, you know, of his time, he was brilliant. And I've got to add on this one note. His legacy lives on in the actor John Leguizamo because John Leguizamo got his name because his mum was a huge John Saxon fan after seeing Enter the Dragon. Interesting. Do you think John Saxon? You look at his, look at look him up on IMDb and you go, oh him. I mean, he had 197 credits for acting listed in IMDb, which is extraordinary. The number of things, especially over the watching TV and films over our lifetimes, the number of times John Saxon turns up, absolutely fantastic and sad loss. I actually had to look him up because I didn't recognise the name. But then when you look him up and you see his picture, I instantly knew who he was. So it's that sort of thing where he wasn't a big name, but I'm pretty certain that even you know any of our viewers who are having the same thought of, oh, I'm not quite sure who that is, if you look him up and see a picture, I can guarantee you, you recognise his face and you would have seen him in lots of different things. A great talent. I mean, he retired in 2015 and he had some retrospectives of his work and I think he was you know really pleased at those moments at that time and again his humor which we don't see that often in films came through tremendous actor over to you Graham
From a very talented and hardworking Mr. Saxon, we turn to another hardworking actor who also happened to be one of the Hollywood greats, Kirk Douglas, 1916 to February 2020. All right, I'll play it for you. Born Izer Danilovich Dembski in Amsterdam, New York, his early life was one of hardship and extreme poverty. Yet the young Kirk, gifted in both intellect and sports ability, he was a professional wrestler in his youth, rose from these humble beginnings to realize his dream of becoming an actor. He came to New York City with plans to be a stage actor. However, after great reviews in his movie debut, The Strange Loves of Martha Ivers, uh, 1946, he quickly rose to stardom. And I, I, he really did. Within three years, he was a major star. It was quite incredible. And he had such movies as Out of the Past in 1947. In 1949, uh, he made a film called Champion, for which he received the first of three Oscar nominations for Best Actor. One of his strengths was he was never afraid to take on the darker roles, such as the classic Ace in the Hole in 1951 uh, or The Vikings in 1958. And yet he was also unforgettable in heroic roles like uh, Spartacus in 1960 or the aptly titled The Heroes of Telemark in 1965. As well as being a uh, major film star, he was also an astute producer with Spartacus, for example, he proved instrumental in ending the blacklist by having Dalton Trumbo's name on screen. Indeed, he was to say, I made over 85 films, but the thing I'm most proud of is the breaking of the blacklist. Kirk Douglas, a force of Hollywood. It is unlikely we will see many like him again. Other films of note are The Detective Story, 1951, Paths of Glory, 1957, Lonely Are the Brave in 1962 and Posse in 1975. When Jeff and I were originally talking about who I would select for this segment, I thought, ah, Kirk Douglas, that should be easy. (laughs) I like his work. I think he's a fine actor and he has a large body of work to pick from. However, large body of work is such an understatement. When I was researching this, I realized that his back catalogue is vast. There is no way I could do justice to this man in five minutes. So Kirk Douglas really is the epitome of the American dream, a towering artistic legacy from humble beginnings. His autobiography was actually titled, I Am the Ragman's Son, which was true. Kirk Douglas was born in 1916, the only son of immigrant Russian Jews. He had six sisters, and 103 years later, he'd become an actor, producer, director, philanthropist and a writer. I mean, I could go on and on about his achievements, the three Academy Award nominations, his Lifetime Achievement Award, his Presidential Medal of Freedom, and let's not forget his Cavalier of the Legion d'Honneur. But to me, as a film fan, it's his work that matters. So I'd just like to pick out some of his best works, roles that meant a lot to me or with whom I had a particular emotional resonance. His roles are many and varied. I mean, from Van Gogh to Spartacus to Doc Holliday to the one-eyed Viking chieftain and Jonathan Shield in The Bad and the Beautiful. He had a talent of bringing something unique to all these roles. Incidentally, that break he got in movies, The the Strange Love of Martha Ivers, 
he got an audition tip from one of his friends at stage school, uh, the wonderful Betty Persky, uh, who would later become Lauren Bacall. Bacall, again, another Jewish immigrant who was raised by a single mother in a one-room apartment on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. From rags to riches stories, two of them there. Whilst everyone has heard of Kirk Douglas, when looking back at his body of work, I was intimidated by the amount of work. I think I've said that already. But he'd also done masses of TV and theatre. He actually took the first version of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest to Broadway. I mean, Douglas always worked very hard at his craft. And when he got too old for the leading man role, he turned to writing and then producing. And then in the end, he just concentrated on his philanthropic work. So for me, his three great movies are Lust for Life, uh, directed by Vincenti Minnelli, uh, where he played Vincent van Gogh. Whilst this film was made whilst Jeff was in his late teens back in 1956. I saw it in the late 60s. <laughs> I was so enchanted by his performance. Um, not only Douglas, but also Anthony Quinn is brilliant as Paul Gauguin, that I actually went out and read uh, Irving Stone's book that the film is based on. I also loved The Vikings, 1958, Great film. It, this is a superhero film before the term had even been coined in cinema. It's a cracking boys on adventure style story with princesses and mistaken identities and swap babies and all that sort of thing. And also, I still cringe to this day at that bit where they cut Tony Curtis's hand off. <laughs> is, yeah. <laughs> and the other great thing is the when they use the hatchets to build a, a ladder up the drawbridge door. That's just a great thing. That film was on TV constantly in the early 70s, and I loved it. Douglas played the manic, slightly crazy Viking chief, Elnar. And then Spartacus, of course. Uh, in 1960, he played the eponymous role of Spartacus, directed by Stanley Kubrick after Anthony Mann was booted off the project. Douglas had worked with Kubrick before on Paths of Glory. Another classic, but no time for that. We discussed Spartacus extensively in show 77. I mean, it's impossible to do it justice or to do his career of 130 years any justice. Uh, I'm amazed that he built such a legacy from absolutely nothing. Kirk Douglas, I will miss you and your Spartacus. Incredible. And uh, and it's the same for, for me, the Vikings. Just that, mo you know, with, with his, the eye patch on, and that fight with Tony Curtis at the end is just a great boys on adventure. But for me, Ace in the Hole, uh, it's one of my favorite films of all time. It's so dark. I, I, I just amazed that, you know, they made that film 70 years ago. And I, I think they would struggle to make anything like it today. Oh, it's, it's 70 years this year. It's actually, it's 1951. Isn't it? yeah. yeah. It's a brutal film. Um, but it says so so much about the media circus that is still relevant today, you know. And Posse, which I uh, I think is as a political western, even films like Saturn Five, which are not him at his best. Oh right? no, doing, doing nude scenes in your early sixties. I mean, not even Neil can get away with that. Um, <laughs> oh, with Far Farrah Fawcett Major, yeah. I could do it on radio. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's doing it right now. <laughs> just yeah tremendous act and of course what's come to light since his death and all these rumors about an incident that happened in his past 
without any proof at all. And I, I find that really disgraceful. A towering talent, and as you say, will be sadly missed. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's an anecdote I'd like to share that I heard about Kurt Douglas on the set of the Vikings. Um, there's a scene very early on in the film, in the film where the, uh, the Viking ship is coming into shore. All the Vikings are doing this thing where they're running and jumping along the, uh, the oars and most of them are falling in the water. And apparently when they were making that scene, all the stuntmen were trying to do this and none of them could do it. We all kept falling in and in and thing. And Kurt Douglas strode up and apparently he basically did it and did it first time out the gate. And, and, that, to, <laughs> and, and that to me kind of just Brilliant. summed up the whole image of Kurt Douglas. He was like a real macho man's man's character this masculine figure. And we, we've talked about a lot of the stuff they did in his heyday, but one film that always stands out for me is the one they did a lot later in his career, um, Tough Guys with Burt Lancaster, where the two of them played a oh, couple yeah. of cons who were released from jail and basically find themselves in a, a new sort of, you know, world that they basically sort of, you know, left behind has totally changed. And they basically have them one last run where they decide that they really hate being old age people. So they decide to have one last run where they hijack a train on its final voyage, the same train that they went to jail for hijack. And it's just a really fun movie. But even then, at that age, Kurt Douglas, he came across as a tough guy, a real, you know, macho guy, and somebody who stood up to authority. And, and it's really fun film. But to me that just you know even at that age he still was able to pull off being like sort of like you know that sort of figure so you know that that's the sort of thing that you know that i will you know remember and probably the sort of role that's probably getting more outdated as we go along an amazing you know wonderful actor and of course his sort of legacy carried on with his um, with his children as well you know a true hollywood legend did you ever see oscar with the film with him and sylvester stallone no i haven't seen no. that either I don't think I have, no. It's a farce, but it's very funny. And the scenes between Kirk Douglas and Sylvester Stallone are hysterical. If you haven't seen it, I'd really recommend it. It's a great little movie. Didn't get the acclaim that it should have done. I remember we had a group of us, about six of us, went down from work one evening to watch it. And we were in hysterics throughout. Really Mm. funny film. One performance I want to add as well, which is... um... He played Chester J. Lampwick on The Simpsons, who's the creator. <laughs> Didn't he? He was the creator of cartoon violence. And I know obviously you've talked about some amazing, fantastic films, but that is he was really funny in that yes. as well. Yes. But it shows the range of him film, doesn't it? You know. I mean, there's this guy who's from essentially the golden age of Hollywood. You know, he comes out in the nineteen forties and then he's still there doing voices in The Simpsons. Just something I want to add because you mentioned it was you know his various range and various roles. There's a uh, there's a little animated short film that's worth um, uh, seeking out called The Big Story. I actually saw it when they showed it before they showed Pulp Fiction, and it's basically an animated scene, and it's three characters who are all Kirk Douglas at various ages. It's only about two minutes or so, but it is a really funny little thing, and it's basically Kirk Douglas being these three different characters. It's, just, it's, it's, worth, it's worth checking out. It's called The Big Story. And to show how relevant he still is, catch up with Seven Days in May about an attempted coup in America. <laughs> 
So from one Hollywood legend who lived to be over 100 to another, Olivia de Havilland, 1916 to July 2020. Sorry, I'd do it again if you killed me for it. Olivia got the acting bug in her teenage years, eventually getting a contract with Warner Brothers Studios. Her success in the 1930s is today remembered for two things. Firstly, her performance as Melanie Hamilton in the blockbuster Gone with the Wind in 1939 and being Errol Flynn's main squeeze in a series of films including Captain Blood 1935 and Adventures of Robin Hood 1938. However, Mr Haviland was dissatisfied with the part she was being offered under contract and eventually took Warner Brothers studio to court. She won and the de Havilland rule limited the length of studio contracts, giving more power to the actors. As a result, her parts improved. They improved so much she won two Oscars, one for To Each His Own, 1947, and the other for The Heiress, 1950. In later years... Olivia followed in the footsteps of actresses like Betty Davis by acting in the tough thrillers in the 1960s, such as Hush Hush, Sweet Charlotte, 1964, before playing grand supporting parts in such films as Airport 77 in 1977 and The Swarm in 1978. She remained class throughout her career, eventually retiring in 1988 and living the rest of her life quietly in Paris. Her legacy a number of classic movies and a rule which safeguards actors when working for major studios. Other films of note, The Private Life of Elizabeth and Essex, 1939, The Snake Pit, 1947, My Cousin Rachel, 1952, Lady in a Cage, 1964, Pope Joan, 1972. Now, I've been adding a brief description of a film every lunchtime on Twitter and Olivia Havilland's name kept coming up in 2020, and nearly always very positive reviews from critics, a class act, on and off screen, and as we mentioned before, are capable of putting a foot down when the need arose. A wonderful lady who took her retirement seriously, like some people we can mention here, and not even agreeing to interviews for the 50th anniversary of Gone of the Wind in 1989, especially if she's the only surviving member of the main cast, a true star during the golden age of Hollywood. I think about Olivia de Havilland more than all the others on you know, what impact she had on me. Obviously, the later roles, which I saw in films like April 77 and The Swarm, were not great films and they didn't make much of an impression. I didn't even think that she was memorable in Gone with the Wind when you compare her to Vivian Lee and Clark Gable. But her parts in Captain Blood, and in particular as Maid Marian in Robin Hood, they were class in the extreme. You know, she was brilliant. And I must admit, the I've never seen the films she's won the Oscars for, so I will seek those out after this. But for me... Robin Hood. And as a, a, a footnote, she took Warner Brothers to court and beat them. She later tried to take, in recent years, TV to court over a show called The Feud about Bette Davis and Joan Crawford. And her portrayal by Catherine Zeta-Jones in that film, she took real umbrage at and tried to get it stopped because she said that's not how she remembers it. And uh, that got thrown out. But I will always remember her, Robin Hood. Darren? I've got to admit, 
I, I never actually realised that she, the um, her playing Maid Marian was she was also the same person who, who was in Gone with the Wind, two very sort of you know different um, characters, and uh, I actually, actually I actually do think she is memorable in Gone with the Wind because she she is a, a you know a complete uh, contrast to Scarlett O'Hara in there. You know she to me she was memorable. I mean. Like you, Jeff, was going through this list. I've not seen a lot of the films that she got such a claim for, and when I've actually you know read about them, they are ones that I would like to seek out because you know some of them sound you know really interesting. I actually do remember her in the Swarm because she plays the school teacher, and even though that is a sort of you know, I mean, I personally like it as a bee movie lover, but I always remember the scene where the bees attack the school, and she's looking out at the uh, the kids all dying in the playground, and she's trying to comfort the children, and that's a for a B-movie, that is a really harrowing scene. And she really, you know, she really sort of sold that. Even in, uh, you know, B-movie um, trash as it was and like that, she, re- you know, to, to me, she was one of the memorable things about that film. So, yeah, you know, a great actress. And again, she's somebody that would, from look here to work, inspire me to, you know, see, um, seek out some more classics of hers. Because like I said, they did start, you know, the plot sound interesting. The Swarm, though. That remembered for me by that classic Michael Caine line, the bees, but they're our friends. <laughs> <laughs> Graham. I'm with Darren on this. I I know she's, you know, she's a dame and uh, all of that. And she was great in Gone with the Wind, uh, one of my mother's favourite films again. But I looked through her list of films and I thought, I haven't seen any of these. This is really embarrassing. You've so, not seen uh, the Errol Flynn films? They've always been on in the background, the Errol Flynn films. You know, the Adventures of Robin Hood, the greatest Robin Hood yes, film of all yeah, time. Yeah, I've probably seen that, but she didn't make an impression on me. And that's the problem. I'm going to have to do some some serious research on this because this is a huge hole. Yeah, Pat Connolly, if you're listening, I apologise for this. <laughs> Once this goes out, I'm going to get a phone call and it'll just be this irate northern bloke on the phone going, rah, 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 Manchester United, rah, Manchester United. <laughs> <laughs> And that'll be my evening gone. But yeah, uh, but, yeah I've got to I've got to do something serious with this. She, she's a, obviously a, an incredible talent. Yeah, and she walked right past me. It was very early. I mean, not even Jeff was alive when she was doing. She was a. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. We got, I see. We got a new manager there. But unlike Craig Douglas, she wasn't really given the credit. I don't think her sister was Joan Fontaine, who was pretty much competing for parts. Yeah, uh, with oh, her yeah. and also yeah, she she just was a little unlucky sometimes with with uh, some of the some of the roles that don't get played on uh, TV these days. My story is even more embarrassing because you mentioned Joan Fontaine when Jeff and I discussed this a couple of weeks ago. I was saying, "Oh yeah, I've seen Rebecca," and I, and I, and I named about three. I named about three Joan Fontaine films. So yeah, I, I think I need to do my research as well. That, that yeah. sound you hear at the moment is Olivia de Havilland spinning in her grave. You mentioned it, sister. <laughs> she, she, they, the two of them apparently fought, but they, they, they denied it as strongly. They they did. Uh, I've got to recommend Lady in a Cage, which is an early James Kahn film as well. If you haven't seen it, that is well worth tracking down. Very much in the whatever happened to Baby Jane category, but it's a great little thriller. I'm going to have to produce a watching list for this and just go and watch about half a dozen of these because this is incredibly embarrassing. 
for all of us. For all, yeah. that's why I picked her really because she doesn't get that sort of, uh, sort of uh, that didn't get that sort of uh, attention when she uh, sadly passed. So after all the front of camera talent that we've spoken about so far, I'm going to go behind the scenes from isolation, which you'll not be surprised to know from me as a composer, one of the greats, Ennio Morricone, 1928, July 2020. The measure of this man's passing was that he was given an obituary on British national news networks. I mean, even Sky News did an article on him. Not many film composers get that on there. As a composer, he scored over 400 movies, which is an incredible achievement. He may not have been known to us today, but for his friendship with director Sergio Leone. They were friends from eight years old. It was the director who brought him on board for A Fistful of Dollars in 1964, made a star of Clint Eastwood and took musical avant-garde approach which changed Western genre music forever. From those beginnings, he's worked with many of the great directors around the world and produced such amazing work for films as varied as The Untouchables in 1987 and Cinema Paradiso in 1988. Yes, Neil, I have seen a subtitle film. (laughs) In his career, he won two Oscars, one honorary, and was nominated five other times. Let this sink in for a moment. He was never nominated for any of his Western scores. Jeez. Or Once Upon a Time in America, 1984, or even Cinema Paradiso. That's what you get for leaving the Oscars to the Yanks. He was, <laughs> he was simply put, a musical talent the like of which we will not see again. So other films of note, scores that I play on constant repeat, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, 1966, Once Upon a Time in the West, 1968, the Mission, 1986, In the Line of Fire, 1993, and the one he did win the Oscar for, The Hateful Eight, in 2015. Just listen to, to the scores. They were so different. They made such an impression on me in certainly my early cinema days. They just stood out. I mean, he scored things like I mean, an awful film like The Exorcist to The Heretic, but yet his score is masterful. And he became a favourite to you know many American directors, but he never learned English. When he worked on The Thing with Carpenter, uh, which is quite famous, because in the end, I think he got quite frustrated, because all Carpenter wanted Morricone to do was score the film in a style that Carpenter had done for his earlier films, which Morricone then said, why doesn't he do the damn thing himself? But of course, then he had this love-hate relationship with Tarantino, where Tarantino used bits of his music. They patched it up to do The Hateful Eight. I have reservations about The Hateful Eight, but his score on that is really good. But again, you know, I've mentioned the great scores, the dollar films, The Mission, which is a a real family favourite, not just one of mine, but all the family love it. And he even inspired something like an Australian group called the Spaghetti Western Orchestra, which do a stage show based on his music. If you haven't seen it, check it out on YouTube. They are fantastic. Uh, I saw them live once, and they were tremendous. We will definitely not see his like again, I'm afraid. Mm. But the master, the El Maestro. Yes, the good, the bad, and the ugly is is extraordinary, isn't it? It's pretty much half the film. Absolutely wonderful. And as soon as you hear it, you go, ooh, what's it on? 
amazing person. For me, it was all about the De Niro films. I think you, you've mentioned them all, Jeff, but um, uh, The Mission and The Untouchables. And the best one of all, my favourite of everything he's ever done, is Once Upon a Time in America. Mm. Yeah. I just think that's a phenomenal score. And it just, the fact that the film crosses so many decades and the score is just haunting. And it's one of those things that with all of his um, scores, you can hear five seconds of one of his scores and it will instantly transport you to that film and you recollect you know, that film. And I think that's just an amazing talent that he had. But there's the thing with that. Well, I mean, Once Upon a Time in America, it's a very violent and intricate puzzle of a film. And yet the score is lyrical and sad and yearnful for the past that these characters had plays against the images you see on screen. I personally think that Good, the Bad and the Ugly, the theme music to that, it's almost like another character within the film. Anyone who's not even seen the film, you will hear that and they can associate it with the, with, you know, with the film. It's just that sort of famous. And it's not just that theme in, in that film, but that, that wonderful scene where the three of them are sort of preparing to have the gunfight with each other. <laughs> and it's a long, yeah. long scene. Yeah. where nothing's happening. Yeah. But that music that sort of builds the tension, it's, it's absolutely incredible. The Untouchables as, as well, I actually think that the, the, you know, the, the theme music to Untouchables actually makes the film better. It, and it's a weird one, that one, because it doesn't sound like a gangster-type score. The Capone music is almost like a James Bond villain, it, you know, how, how it sort of sounds. But it works. And, and it's just, just fabulous. But, but the one for me that always gets me is um, Once Upon a Time in America. That there's just something about that that just is so heartfelt. And, and like you say, it's basically this, this nostalgia for the past, but it's also this nostalgia for a time when they were young and they had friends and then the, and mourning the loss of the one that, you know, got to gunned down in the street. It's, it's just it's just absolutely wonderful, haunting theme. But, Looking through his list of work, it's just, you know, the amount of volume of work that he, that he did was incredible. But, but you know, but those like, ones that he was famous for, just just amazing. He, he, he elevated the films that he that he did those music with. Graham, anything you want to add? Yeah, I'm just going to say about his actual music. He is now the most taught composer at classical uh, music schools. You can find courses all over the world called the five compositional elements that define the music of Ennio Morricone. And they will teach you how to do film music correctly in this course. And they will use Ennio Morricone as the teaching aid. So wow. he's, he's so good. And his input to film music is so legendary that students now study him. Within his own lifetime, this happened. Wow. So that's the mark of the man. And while I like Once Upon a Time in America, I always preferred The Untouchables. I thought that was fantastic score he did for that, and I just loved it. We we won't hear his like again, really. I don't think so. Mm -hmm. He's defined his own genre, and you only have to hear the four or five notes at the start, and bang. You you know what what's who who wrote this and what it's what's it's all about really. Mm. Yeah, so much of film music today has become generic, but Morricone stayed outside of that and produced something that was unique. Phil.
So there are two things all the people we've talked about so far have in common. Um, not only were they talented, but they all lived to grand old ages. Um, so sadly, my selection passed away far too young. Um, Chadwick Boseman was born in 1976 and died August 2020. Get this man shit. Best remembered as T'Challa or the Black Panther, which came out in 2018. A mesmeric performance, which was powerful and graceful, making the actor a household name and the first black actor to headline a billion dollar plus movie. Yet even if Chadwick had not taken that wrong, he'd be remembered for his outstanding work in bringing other real-life role models to life. There was baseball legend Jackie Robinson in 42, which came out in 2013, and singer James Brown in Get On Up, which came out in 2014, and crusading lawyer Thurgood Marshall in the film Marshall, which came out in 2017. While you can never be certain where an actor's career would take them, it would be a fair bet to believe that Chadwick would have been one of the great actors of his generation. You just need to look at his final two films to know that this would have been true. A very sad and unexpected loss for us all. Some of his other great films, Captain America Civil War in 2016, Avengers Infinity War in 2018, and then this year um, we had The Five Bloods and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. I'm getting emotional, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is the one that hurt, wasn't it? See, this, is, this is hard, this one. The thing with everything you're saying here is, you know, this was a talent that went too soon. I was travelling across America once, and that's when I first saw Chadwick Boseman. I put there at 42 on the plane, so I sat and watched it. And I was mesmerised by this film and this character. I mean, he had a tough upbringing, you know, and he rose above that. And I think he would have been one of the great actors of his generation. And I've yet to see Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, and I'm so looking forward to watching that. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, it's brilliant. I saw Get On Up at the cinema, and the very first time that he broke the fourth wall and spoke directly to the camera, it was just an electric feeling. Um, it's a massive loss, and I desperately hope that he's awarded a posthumous Oscar, um, either for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom as Best Actor or for his supporting role in Defied Bloods, not just to recognise those two great performances in his final year, but just to recognise the loss that everyone feels in terms of his potential. 2020 was such a, an, an awful year news-wise for so many reasons, but this this one hurt. It, and, you know, I, I remember waking up in the morning and just seeing the news and just like couldn't believe it. And I was want, wanting it to be like a you know a false news story, just sort of something that had been you know. I, I, and it was just so out of the blue and and unexpected. It just hurt because Black Black Panther wasn't just a, a Marvel or a superhero movie. It was a movie that just meant so much to so many people for for obvious reasons. You know that when we get eventually the, the next film set in Wakanda, it's going to be heartbreaking because it will have to address what happens to the character. And that's just, it's just going to be so emotional, but it's going to be so inspiring as well. But the fact that they will still have that character's presence set in stone. And it's, it's just a heartbreak. I mean, the, the thing is, as well that got it um, is uh, Defy Bloods had, had um, come out just a few months before. And, and the character on that is that the um, 
you know, the the, uh, the, the old friends will go up back to Vietnam. But the Chadwick Boseman character is sort of played as as as, as the young one who who died back then. And again, it's just a level of poignancy that that sort of you know you know left on the film, and because he he just had he just had that so much potential. I mean, even in a film right towards the end, um, uh, Twenty One Bridges. Which is a it's a fun movie, but it's pretty standard crime movie. But he had so much presence in there; he elevated the movie. And and from all reports, that you know, as great as he is, he was in front of the camera. It sounds like you know behind the scenes, it was you know a, a wonderful, charming, you know, intelligent person as well. And he's just four years of colon cancer, in which he made four of the highest grossing films of all time. Extraordinary man. Yes, remarkable. He, he was a graduate of Harvard, and he did a summer dramatic academy program in Oxford University, uh, paid for by Denzel Washington, incidentally. Uh, he didn't start as an actor. He was going to be a, a writer or a director, but he he realised he didn't really know much about acting, so he decided to be a, be an actor for a bit to uh, so he could relate to actors. Absolutely amazing, a special talent, and yeah, just taken too soon. One thing I like about Chadwick Boseman is you can watch a number of his films and not realise it's him in it. So yeah. I watched mm. The Five Bloods and I didn't realise until I saw the credits that it was him. Yeah. No. Yeah, he becomes the character, doesn't he? Yeah. Especially 42, you just think you're watching this. And uh, yeah, amazing. Yeah. I, I Sorry, felt, Darren. I felt the same way with the James Brown film that he mm. was in. Because I, I, I mm. saw that when it, when it first came out and... It, it wasn't until I sort of re, you know rewatched it a few years ago that I actually realised that you know that it was Chadwick Boseman, you know, because I'm not yeah. been following his his career, but you know, and it, and it was a, a, you know a great in that. That's that's a really sort of challenging role to have somebody play somebody that talented who had so many demons. Just going back to the Black Panther, there's no way that it's a um, a, co- a coincidence or by accident, but. The first person to walk out well, at the end when all the heroes come back in um, uh, in Avengers Endgame, but the first one to come out is him. You know, because because that you know, oh, that, yeah. you know because that character is you know is so like, like I say, is so iconic and you know transcends you know you know the superhero genre. That you know him being the first one to come out there, you know, that there's a reason why he was the first one chosen to come out. As you know, I have many reservations on Marvel, but what I will say is they know how to pick strong actors to play really good parts, and this was gold. I'm quite upset that I never got to see his portrayal of Jimi Hendrix, another incredible incredible legend who was taken far too young, and I would have loved to have seen that. I love... I loved the James Brown uh, performance in Get On Up and, you know, and 42 was great. He really, and as Jeff said, you know, you think, is that Chadwick Boseman and, at the end of the film? But, yeah, he just becomes the character. And I've got um, uh, Ma Rainley's Black Bottom lined up to watch, so I'm going to re- really enjoy that. Phil, excellent choice. And finally, on this sad subject, a brief roll call of just some of the other famous names who passed during 2020. Sean Connery, who we previously discussed in episode 114. Dinah Rigg, another Bond alumni, and of course Emma Peel in The Avengers on TV. More up-to-date, she was excellent in Game of Thrones, extraordinary in Game of Thrones. 
Brian Dennehy, a wonderful character actor who found fame playing the sheriff in First Blood. Check him out in Cocoon, Bestseller and Romeo and Juliet, amongst many other fine performances. Buck Henry, a screenwriter without whom the 60s and 70s would never have been the same. The man behind such classics as The Graduate, Catch-22 and What's Up Talk. Terry Jones, part of the Monty Python team and director of Life O'Brien and Personal Services. Dave Prowse, a hammer icon and, of course, the body of Darth Vader. Joel Schumacher, director of such films as Batman Forever and Falling Down. And many others, too numerous to mention here. And to everyone, we say thank you for entertaining and educating us. Well said. Thank you, Neil. And after that sad reflection, let's go to our alternative awards. It's good to see everyone suited and booted for the occasion, even you, Neil. As we're already running late, let's get straight on with the show. Graham, I believe you're presenting the first award. And unlike the Oscars, we go for prestigious first. So, first one, the Gibson Award for the best Mel Gibson movie of the year. Oh, God, here we go. Thank you so much for giving me the dubious honour of presenting this achievement to one of my filmmaking heroines. While 2020 was a horrible year, and it really was, it did have a silver lining, really, in that there were two classics from Mel. There were three classics from the Mel, regardless of the fact that I couldn't get on the set of one of them. Thanks for revealing that in our end of year show, Jeff. I still hold his talent in high regard. This is all fake news. The nominations for the Gibson Award for the best Mel Gibson movie of the year are Fat Man, in which the fat Mel Gibson gives a heartbreaking performance of an emotionally damaged person. Oh, Santa Claus. Who has to take the law into his own hands to make Christmas great again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I see what you did there, Jeff. Yeah. Easily the best portrayal of Father Christmas since Edmund Gwen in the original Miracle on 34th Street. The second film, The Professor and the Madman. Here, the male is Professor James Murray, the man who compiled the first edition of the Oxford English Dictionary. What could have easily been a dry tome is transformed into an edge of the sea thriller. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. By one of the male's most heartbreaking performances. (laughs) Are you paid to write this, Jeff? And then finally, Force of Nature. This nomination has come from me. Me, I did this. None of us have seen it yet, but I know it will be in my top 10 films of the year. So I want to nominate it now. And the winner is... Fat Man, a future Christmas classic, has been recognised. Thank you, Jeff, for the honour of giving out this award. I am going to have to sit down for a moment whilst this hot flush passes, (laughs) and I will pass over to Neil for the Star Wars Award to the most pointless sequel. Thanks, Graham. Have a drink of water. You'll feel better soon. (laughs) 
I get <laughs> overcome like this when I, I take less than 20 strokes for one hole of golf. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know where you were going with that. <laughs> for the Star Wars Award for the most pointless sequel are... Bill and Ted face the music many years yes. after the series' best before date. Our two heroes get back together for a pointless adventure and you spend most of the time wondering where one of them has been all these years. Bad Boys for Life, many years after the series' best before date, our two heroes get back together for a pointless adventure and you spend most of the time wondering where one of them has been all these years. <laughs> we did that, Jeff. It's a theme. <laughs> That's good. Wonder Woman 1984, you wait patiently through a locked-down year for a superhero movie and you get this half-finished effort. Thank you, 2020. You cleaned that one up then, Jeff, because I said half-arsed. Yep. <laughs> the November Lockdown, the sequel that should have been avoided, just like any of the other three mentioned. <laughs> and the winner is... Bad Boys for Life. Yes, of course. And sadly, thanks to COVID, one of the highest grossing movies of the year. Thank you again, 2020. Darren... Over to you for the Braveheart Award for the most annoying rewriting of history. Thank you very much. Okay, so the nominations for the Braveheart Award for the most annoying rewriting of history are Richard Jewell. The fascinating true story of Richard Jewell is underlined by a baseless insinuation that reporter Kathy Scrooge slept with her FBI contact to pass along false information about the security guard. This is shocking slut-shaming from director Clint Eastwood, a lapse from a normally great director. Jojo Rabbit, there is absolutely no evidence that Adolf Hitler spent time trying to directly influence small children in, <laughs> in a one-on-one -on -one manner. I wonder where you were going with that. <laughs> um, okay, The Trial of the Chicago 7. While this is one of the best films of the year, it did take certain liberties with the truth. A couple of examples, the incident with Bobby Seale being tied and gagged went on for days in reality. David Dellinger, a lifelong pacifist, did not hit anyone, and the park confrontation is misrepresented. And the winner is... La La Land! Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. No, <laughs> Richard Jewell. I saw what you did there. Richard Jewell, a shaming of a reporter who used sex as a weapon and is no longer here to defend herself, is simply unforgivable in an otherwise excellent feature. And I'll pass you over to Phil for the Hobbit Trilogy Award for the most gratuitous cash-in. The nominations for the Hobbit Trilogy Award for the most gratuitous cash-in are... Bill and Ted face the music. Many years after the series' best before date, our two heroes get back together for a, <laughs> for a pointless adventure and we spend most of the time wondering where one of them has been all these years. <laughs> but you can't guess what's next. Bad boys for life. Many years after the series' best before date, our two heroes get back together for a pointless adventure and we spend most of the time wondering where one of them has been all these years. Where have you been? <laughs> Uh, Mulan, rather than wait, the House of Mouse decided to release in Chinese cinemas and charge Disney Plus subscribers $30 to, to see it. 
Talk about screwing people over in lockdown and there was no Mushu. This could also be nominated for taking the piss award. (laughs) Dishonourable mention, all the ghoulish YouTubers who asked what Marvel should be doing with Black Panther uh, before Chad McBoseman was even in his grave. You need to re-examine your lives. And the winner is... Mulan, in their panic to get this out by fleecing people, this has probably lost Disney close on a billion dollars. Less Mickey, more Goofy. (laughs) Over to Jeff for the Heaven's Gate Award for the most embarrassing failure. Thanks, Phil. Now, to be honest, this could go to Boris Johnson's handling the pandemic or Orange Man's attempt to overthrow democracy. But I digress (laughs) and return to film. The nominations for the Heaven's Gate Award for the most embarrassing failures are Emma. Now, it's a crap story to begin with, but this... I like this one. (laughs) Cheeky bastard. (laughs) Yeah, and that sums up Neil's tape. (laughs) I like it as well. (laughs) Thanks, Darren. That sums up there then, I think, really. Uh, Is the cinematic equivalent of watching paint dry. It fails on every level to ignite interest. Doolittle, despite Robert Downey Jr.'s best efforts at a Welsh accent... This mishmash of a movie fails to engage despite extensive reshoots. It was Welsh. <laughs> that was what he was trying to do. Ah, okay. But the animals were speaking in English. Uh-huh. So clearly those animals weren't telling you to run away from this disaster. <laughs> Wonder Woman 1984. As we said earlier, a half-finished effort. Thank you again, 2020. And thank you, 2021, for trying to claw back money via VOD. So, a dishonourable mention, the all-star Imagine cast. And I had the misfortune of watching this. Thank you, Darren. Some of the cast of Wonder Woman 1984 strike again with this attempt to sing the John Lennon song, Imagine. It was meant to raise our spirits during lockdown. Instead, it just increased the suicide rate. And the winner is... Doolittle. A huge financial flop in the 1960s and again in 2020. It's a sad day in hell when Eddie Murphy proves himself better than Rex Harrison and Robert Downey Jr. Mm. Right. After that list, I think I need a shower to cleanse myself. While I go off for that, I will hand back to Graham, now recovered from his hero worship and stains (laughs) of the bell, to give the Steven Seagal Award for the actor you don't want to see next year. Thanks, Jeff. I know what you mean, as I have to have a cold shower whenever I... Oh, for crying out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never going to trust you to write anything ever again. Right. The nominations for the illustrious Steven Seagal Award for the actor you don't want to see next year are Dave Batista. His attempts at comedy this year are just so bad. He is a big bloke, so Neil, I am nominating you to tell him that. Daddy's films are rubbish. <laughs> Mel Gibson. Okay, who nominated the Mel? This is great. Thank you very much. <laughs> and the nominations for uh, Anchorman Award for Graham for uh, reading whatever's written down. <laughs> Jai Courtney is just so average. And for our cinema recovery in 2021, we need more than average. And he has been bred for bar work, not film acting. He's Australian. Can't say that. 
Lucas Hedges, just stop being so earnest in all those award-winning movies. We have not forgiven you yet for being in that awful Lady Bird. Well, that's a, that's a Jeff one. I liked Lady Bird. I thought it was yeah. great. And the winner is... Dave Batista. Okay, as a result, we now intend to boycott Dune and Guardians of the Galaxy 3 as a punishment. So there, says Jeff. Back to golf swing, Neil, to knock this next one out of the park, or at least a... (laughs) <laughs> or at least have a few strokes. Thank you. <laughs> it is the award for the Boris Johnson Award for the Family Film of the Year. <laughs> Thanks, Graham. These awards are going on longer than the Oscars, and I need to get to Elton John's part. Oh, thank you very much for that one. <laughs> so I'm cutting the nominations out and just opening the envelopes. The Boris Johnson Award for the Family Film of the Year goes to Wolf Walkers. Sorry, I just can I just do a U-turn on that one and go with the one and only Ivan? Oh, no, sorry, another U-turn. And I'll go with Soul. Oh, that Pixar. Oh no, I need to change that to Onward. Okay, I'm done now, and that's my final selection. I'm absolutely set on Wolf Walkers. <laughs> Oh, blast. I've just had a word with Pretty Patel and Govi, and they tell me it can't be wolf walkers, they're Irish and therefore not from the EU. Uh, the one and only Ivan is a gorilla and therefore from some foreign land, uh, so nope. Although I'd take a gorilla hand ashtray if it was... No, I wouldn't take a gorilla hand ashtray. Soul is full of very talented black people and on that sort of person. No place in Brexit Britain. She has no idea where the people would have from. They're definitely not from around here, so that's not getting in. So we're referring this award to Cobra Meeting, so Boris Johnson won't be there. And we'll be back with an answer just in time for next year's award. I need to sit down. That you'll be pleased to hear is the end of the awards. Apart from the awards, Graham will not let me tell you because they include... And let's go to the top secret awards, lads, so even you haven't seen these yet. Okay, they are. Thanks for that, Jeff. At least three laws have broken with those awards. So sorry, listener, you'll never get to hear them, not even on our upcoming Patreon account. OK, let's get positive and inclusive. What are you looking forward to in 2021? Cinemas open, plenty of new movie choice. Well, let's tell you our hope for the year and see if you agree. Over to Jeff to start. Remember, Jeff, this section of the show is meant to be positive. Thanks, Neil. I will bear that in mind. So for me, 2020 was the year that cinemas effectively went on hold, and I'm hoping that 2021 will be the year of the big releases. So many movies in so many cinemas, you won't know what to watch first. Now, last year, I made a list of four films I desperately wanted to see, and none of them opened. And I'm sure that the cinema closing is a conspiracy against me and my choices. So I'm not paranoid at all. So let's try and work out when I can see these potential classics. And as it turns out, not all of them are now going to open in cinemas. And in fact, we'll start with one that isn't. The Woman in the Window, which I first spoke about in May 2019, based on a fantastic book. It's a sort of cross between Vertigo and The Girl on the Train. Amy Adams, Gary Oldman, Julianne Moore star. Adams plays a recluse who spends her time watching the neighbours. 
bit like you, Neil. Things take a turn for the worse when a seemingly perfect family moves across the road and bad things start to happen. There are a few twists and turns, and as directed by Joe Wright, I'm expecting big things from this one. Although no longer coming to cinemas, it's confirmed as a Netflix release at some point during the first half of 2021. Thanks again, COVID. Next up, The King's Men in March. I believe that when I see it as well. Uh, the prequel to The King's Men movies, it's set around the time of World War One. Now, we've covered this in our movie news columns before. And if it has the same level of fun and violence as the others, then I think it's going to be a blast. And it's a great cast, which includes Ralph Fiennes, leader of the Kingsman, and not to be confused with his other role of M, Gemma Atherton, Charles Stance, and Tom Hollander. It may well be one of the first big films to open in the UK in 2021. I've got my fingers crossed and I'm hoping. Now, April supposedly sees the release of Last Night in Soho, directed by Edgar Wright. What little we know of this time-travelling horror film is that it is mainly set in 1960s and stars modern-day screen queen Anya Taylor-Joy, oh dear, uh, Matt Smith, Terence Stamp, and the last appearance of the great Diana Rigg. Now, I think it's a fair bet to say, expect the unexpected and hopefully lots of great 60s music. You'll remember that, Graham. And finally, the postponement that almost wrecked Christmas for me, you can release your Wonder Woman 1984, but no, you can't get out Peter Rabbit 2, The Runaway, the one the whole team are waiting to fight for. <laughs> yeah. More James Corden, more rabbit fun, and of course, part of it filmed in Gloucestershire. Mind you, another bit was filmed in Australia, but then you'd be able to tell the difference because UK is green and there's not so many bars around. Now, this, <laughs> <laughs> this kid, <laughs> This is scheduled to open in February, which won't happen, but I'm hoping it will open this summer. Uh, possibly even, dare I think it, an Easter treat. Rabbits, you know, good thing, oh, really. God. We could have it as a double bill with Watership Down. <laughs> Neil, over to you. What are you looking forward to doing this movie going year? I know what I'd like to do, Peter Rabbit. I got it badly wrong last year. Artemis Fowl, how could they? I still haven't agree. seen that. Is it as bad as they say? Oh, it's awful. It's worse. It's, oh, yeah. It's worse, yeah. I fell asleep when I watched it. Absolutely shocking. My first film, Raya and the Last Dragon. Disney's latest, directed by Paul Briggs and Dean Wellens, both of whom spent many years in the Disney animation department, starring Aquafina and Kelly Marie Tran, about a fantasy land and a quest to find the last dragon. I hope this doesn't copy Swayze's as Cuba and the two strings, but fingers crossed. Last night in Soho, as Jeff said, Edgar Wright is back. Huzzah! Now, this is a horror film apparently inspired by Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now with Julie Christie and Donnie Sutherland and Pat Polanski's Repulsion, starring Catherine Deneuve, neither of which I've seen, obviously. I was going to have this as my 2021 horror film, but as this episode comes out, we'll be recording reviews of Creepshow Cujo and The Dead Zone, so that goes out the window. I'm there for you, Neil. <laughs> Luca. Uh, on the 18th of June, this latest offering from Pixar after 2020's Soul will be a deeply personal coming-of-age tale with a twist from director Enrico Casarosa, formerly Pixar storyboard artist. 
The story will focus on the title character who lives in the Italian Riviera and strikes up a friendship with another boy who is secretly a sea monster disguised as a human. Little else is known about this one, strangely. Not even the voice cast is on IMDb. Curious. The Suicide Squad, 6th of August, directed by James Gunn. 2016's Suicide Squad was a terrible film, but quite a lot of it was redeemable. Michael Robbie, Viola Davis, Joe Kimmerman, Yai Courtney will all return, so this might be okay. There are new cast members, Idris Elba, Sylvester Stallone and Nathan Fillon, to name but three. And again, fingers crossed for this one. The Last Duel, 15th of October, directed by Ridley Scott. A tale of knights and maidens, Adam Driver, Matt Damon, Jodie Comer and Ben Affleck, who actually plays King Charles VI of France, known for his mental illness and psychotic episodes which plagued him throughout his life. Half the film was shot in France prior to COVID-19, so hopefully the rest of the film hasn't been compromised. Again, high hopes for this one. Darren. I've got to say that I am unable to get excited for any of the films this year until I know for certain I am going to see them. So even when I, I, was, I want to see Top Gun, even though I want to see the new James Bond film and Black Widow, I refuse to get excited because I just can't get hurt again when they get put back into 2022. So the films I've chosen are the ones that I know for a fact I am going to see this year. So one of them is upcoming film Promising Young Woman. As far as I can see, I'm pretty much the only person on Twitter that has not seen this film yet because everybody else is going on how great it is. All the people I know have got uh, Rotten Tomatoes and verifications have all had screeners and everything. And so I'm actually looking forward to seeing this one. I've heard a lot of different views. Everyone seems to think that the film is great, but there's a lot of different views on sort of, you know, for, for certain reasons, whether they like it or not. But I'm really looking forward to seeing it to, to find out for myself. Godzilla versus King Kong, I know for a fact I will be seeing this because it's Warner Brothers and all of their films this year are going to be released on streaming. So even if I can't get to a cinema, I'll still be able to see it. Godzilla versus King Kong, well, I've got to say King of Monsters I was really, really disappointed with last year. However, I loved the first Godzilla film and I really loved uh, King Kong Skull Island. So hopefully those two together will make this a great film. If nothing else, it's going to be a really, really good matchup. The Suicide Squad, another film which is definitely going to be released this year and will definitely be on streaming at least. Now, I loved the first Suicide Squad. Actually, no, sorry, can I just say this again? I'll give it its proper title, the Academy Award-winning Suicide Squad. <laughs> okay? I it was. No. Yeah, yeah it, it won an Academy Award. <laughs> best, hair, best hair and makeup. So there, it counts. <laughs> I'm taking that, okay? I understand all the problems with it and everything, and it was really, really rushed and stuff, but I had it a lot of fun. This one should be so much better. It's got James Gunn, you know, helming it. It's got Margot Robbie back as Harley Quinn. I, I could watch Harley Quinn in any movie, frankly. And it's got a massive cast of weird and wonderful superheroes, a lot of whom I'm thinking is going to be a bloodbath and will not make it till halfway through the film. So I think this one's going to be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to it. Other things I'm looking forward to, all the Marvel TV series, which we're going to get this year, because frankly, as far as I'm concerned, 
they are movies just split into several segments. So I'm really looking forward to Loki, uh, Winter Soldier and Falcon. Even if Black Widow doesn't come out, I've still got my Marvel fix coming along. Two really weird films that we're going to get very shortly. Both of them starring Nicolas Cage. One of them is called Willie's Wonderland, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, so don't get excited, Jeff. It's not that sort of film. This one's about <laughs> this one's about Nicolas Cage getting trapped in a um, theme park at night where all the uh, rides and all the animatronics start to come real and he has to fight them all. And the next one sounds absolutely weird and wonderful. It's called The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. And it's basically Nicolas Cage starring as Nicolas Cage as a uh, failed down on his look actor who's basically forced to do a performance at a gangster's um, son's birthday party. But he also as as basically is going in as an FBI mole. So it looks like a big, massive action movie. One of the funny things about it is as well, it's going to have a young Nicolas Cage meeting the old Nicolas Cage. Just so much Nicolas Cage, this is going to be absolutely awesome. <laughs> and then Jack Snyder has a Netflix film coming out called Army of the Dead. I know zombie movies were basically really, really bored of them and everything. This is Zack Snyder, so it's going to be a, a massively over the top and lots of fun. And then one I'm actually sort of more seriously looking forward to, I don't know a great deal about it, but it's a film called Blonde, and it's going to be a biopic of Mallory Monroe. And again, that's going to be on Netflix as well. So that's something else that I'm really looking forward to. And at least these are films that I know that I will get to see this year. Okay, Phil. Yeah, so I have lots and lots of films that I'm looking forward to this year. Um, So I've kind of grouped them together a little bit. Um, Some were postponed from last year. So I'm really hoping that they're going to come out this year. And some were supposed to come out this year already. So I suppose some of those might get pushed into next year, depending on how they decide to sort of play it and release some of these films. So let's jump in. Comic book movies are all about Marvel this year. We've got Black Widow. Is that going to eventually land on Disney Plus though? Who knows? We've got Shang-Chi, which I'm really looking forward to, actually. It's a really little-known comic book character, and I'm hoping it kind of has a... It's as good as, like, Doctor Strange, and it's a bit of a breakout. Um, And then we've got our first sort of team-up movie since The Avengers with The Eternals. I'm looking forward to all of those. I guess, depending on what they decide to do with Black Widow, they might all get bumped, and then Eternals perhaps might not make it to this year. Um, we've also got another Spider-Man film, so technically Sony, but it's in the MCU. And I think uh, two people already mentioned it. James Gunn is fraternising with DC and uh, doing The Suicide Squad. So they're all of the, the comic book films I'm looking forward to. Then there's a group of films from directors that I absolutely love. So Ridley Scott's The Last Duel has already been mentioned. Damien Chazelle was making a film called Babylon, which I think has already been pushed to 2022, but I'm going to mention it anyway because he's brilliant. Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch was was my most looked forward to film of last year. So really sincerely hope that appears in cinemas at some point this year. Paul Thomas Anderson is making a film called Soggy Bottom. But again, not sure if it's going to arrive. Terence Malick has finished filming a film called The Way of the Wind, but sometimes he takes a bit bit of time over the edits. It might appear this year or next. But he um, did uh, A Hidden Life last year, which was my favourite film of last year. It's absolutely brilliant. 
jumping across to action movies, we've got Top Gun Maverick, which was one of my most looked forward to films last year. It should hopefully be this year. And then Tom Cruise might be back again for Mission Impossible 7. Um, and then, of course, we've got Bond. Um, we've got The Matrix 4. And um, I talked about this two years ago. There's a film called Chaos Walking, directed by um, uh, the guy who did um, Edge of Tomorrow and the first Bourne film, starring Tom Holland and Daisy Ridley. Um, it might actually be coming out this year. It's called Chaos Walking. I can't remember the name. Uh, Doug Lyman. Thank you. In terms of Oscar buzz, it's been mentioned already, Promising Young Woman um, looks amazing. Um, I've muted it on Twitter. Uh, Darren, you're absolutely right. It was doing my head and I didn't want to have any spoilers, so I've muted it on Twitter so I can't see anything about it. Nomadland is winning lots of awards at the moment and stars Francis McDormand. News of the World, which is Paul Greengrass, Neil, um, and that's a Western with Tom Hanks in it. Spielberg's West Side Story is meant to be out at Christmas. We've got Dune to look forward to. Even with Dave Bautista will be amazing. (laughs) Some horror films. Last Night in Soho has been mentioned already. Do you remember those heady days back in um, March when... I had a ticket for a double bill of A Quiet Place Part 1 and 2. Um, and literally about three days before it came out, everyone went, actually, we need to shut everything down. Has anyone heard of when A Quiet Place Part 2 might actually get rescheduled? It has to come this year, right? It is this year, but I think they moved it to the summer now. So the first was one of my favourite films of its year of release. I thought it was a really, really great horror film. And we've got Spiral from The Book of Saw which is um, a really intriguing prospect because Chris Rock, comedian, who apparently is a big fan of the Saw films, has written and is starring in a sort of spin-off horror film for the series. So that intrigues me greatly. We we should have a group outing for that, all of us. (laughs) Yes. Julian, you, Neil. Yeah, dream dream on. Yeah. And um, Wild Card... Hopefully this will be out. I suspect, given that it's a bit obscure, might be a streaming release. There's a film called The Green Knight that stars Dev Patel. It's really unique and exciting looking, and it's about Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Check out the trailer. It's It looks really cool. I didn't know about that one. I'll have a look at that. And that's it. Lots of films. Whistle Stop Tour. Really hope that I get to see at least 75% of those. Fingers crossed. Well, thank you all for adding your films to the to the script. Let's go to the next item on the script. Oh, Graham's film this year. I've just gone through my list of films, and everybody's talked about it. So I had The French Dispatch by Wes Anderson because I got for Christmas. I got uh, Unintentional Anderson the book, and love that. It's brilliant. Uh, I wanted to see Top Gun Maverick, Mission Impossible Seven, No Time to Die, The Matrix Four. And what's left on my list is Morbius, where starring Jared Leto and Matt Smith. And that's meant to be coming out on the 19th of March. That's not going to happen. That's been put back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, Venom, Let There Be Carnage, uh, starring um, Tom Hardy again. And that one is meant to be coming out on the 2nd of October. So that's not going to happen. Shang-Chi, Dan, uh uh, Phil's already talked about that one. Suicide Squad, everybody's mentioned that one. Eternals, uh, somebody mentioned that one as well. And the Spider-Man 
Far From Home sequel, currently unnamed. I'm also looking to that one. And that's got a release date of very nebulous December 2021. So, oh, I can't wait to watch Tom Holland's excellent performance in that. Well, you're a huge fan of Tom Holland. I mean, I know, I know he's a bit young for you, but you keep writing those letters to him. So, <laughs> you, you get to see uh, multiple Tom Holland this year because he's got Cherry, Spider Man, and Chaos Walking. And you could top that all off with um, the excellent Devil All the Time on Netflix. Yes, and that's really good as well. And finally, I really am looking forward to West Side Story. So that's my list, which everybody else. That's the the joy of going last, isn't it? Really, thanks, Jeff. Hey, you're there. (laughs) Thank you all for those excellent choices. I mean, if I can see half of that list, and especially Boss Level and Peter Rabbit too, I'll be a happy man. Boss okay. level, that's a Mel Gibson film, isn't it? It might be. It she might be. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's move on. Let's look at the here and now. Darren's Dash. Okay, so just a couple of quick ones this time. Um, I'm Your Woman. Uh, this is directed by Julia Hart, who did the excellent Fast Colour the uh, over year, which you can find on Netflix. Wonderful movie. This is a 70s style noir um, story where Rachel Brosnahan is a housewife who's married to an obviously dodgy guy who has links with a few uh, local unsavoury criminals. For example, one day he comes home with a baby out of the blue, which he basically just announces they're going to raise as their own. Anyway, one day he goes out and goes missing. and One of his colleagues shows up at her house and announces that she's got to pack up all her bags and um, leave with him because they're going into hiding. And it soon becomes apparent that she is being hunted by gangsters for something that her husband did. Now, this is a, a quite a slow-paced film at times. It, it, it takes a little bit of patience, but it is a really compelling story because, and it's done in a really cool narrative in that you spend the entire film with Jean, the main character. So you're only learning what's happened as she is told or finds out herself. And she's basically in the dark completely about her her husband's dealings. There are times when she basically goes on the run with this other family and the times when they are basically separated and when they get reunited, they've had events happen to them. There's times when they get um, separated in gunfights. And again, you only see what she is actually seeing. So when she's sort of hiding, there's a gunfight going on around her but you don't see exactly who's fighting her and everything. It's a really great way of telling this story. If you have a taste for really Pulp Fiction-style novels, the sort of stuff that Elmore Leonard or Carl Hyerson used to do, then I think you will really like this. It's a really good story. It keeps you on the toes the entire time. And it's also about this woman who's basically in a situation that she can't control. It's a really tense film and it's got a really authentic crime feel to it. Where can people catch that one? It's on Amazon Prime. The next one is a uh, a Netflix movie, and this is a bit of a horror one. This is called His House. Now, this one's directed by Remy Weeks, and it's a British horror movie, and it's all about a refugee couple. And once they're here, while their status as asylum seekers is pending, they are assigned to a a run-down house in a really, really rough area. And there's all these rules that they have to follow. They're not allowed to uh, move from this uh, house apart from it being in a really rough area, also turns out to be haunted by a a group of aggressive spirits. 
tension and the building this is really something as it's a really slow builders they know that something's wrong with this house and they're trying to find out where it is and it's really suspensefully well done it really helps as well that you actually have real sympathy for this uh, for this couple because of everything they're having to go through everything they've had had to go through to get there there's flashbacks so you see that the horrors that they've had to face and also revelations about some stuff that they've had to do to survive and some really nasty stuff that they themselves have had to do this is a really really scary film i thought the ghosts and the spirits are done in this really vibrant sort of solid way about them. So the ghosts and that aren't hiding a lot of the time. There's some really spooky moments where they're just sat in the living room and they can see the ghosts staring through them through cracks in the walls. It's a really hor- horrible sort of like scary movie. The problem with a lot of horror films and particularly um, haunted house movies is you get to a point where you just want to scream to the people and it just get out of the house and leave. And of course, with these two, they can't do that, you know, And because if they do that, they're going to be sent back to Sudan. So they're trapped in this house. It's a really, really compelling story. Got great horror elements and it is really creepy and scary. This is a, you know, this is a really original British horror movie. I mean, the plight of refugees is something quite serious and obviously quite up to the moment. And it can also be a touchy subject. Does it handle that well? Yeah, it, it definitely does. A lot of the story is there, sort of them being thrust into this sort of like this really sort of dodgy area and having to basically just sort of like, you know, stay there and stuff. And there's a few things that happen where you're not quite sure whether it's actually the spirits at work or if it's just them sort of like trying to um, you know, adapt to this new life that they've got. There's a, there's a moment where the, uh, the young lady just goes out to try and f- find some food from the supermarket and she gets lost and she just starts finding herself going in the same place time and time again. You don't know if it's actually the spirits which are basically controlling this or if it's just the sort of in her mind how sort of like scary it is for her to be in this situation. But yeah, the you know, they are treated really well with a lot of sympathy. And it also goes into the problems that people, you know, that refugees would have. In, in an everyday situation, you know, trying to survive on sort of like, you know, a small handouts and everything. So it is sensitively well done, but also, you know, the added horror elements. And the horror elements do sort of link up to the life that they've had overseas. So I think it is a really tastefully, and it's also a very, you know, food for thought film about the way sort of asylum seekers are treated when they get to this country. Well, it's certainly on my watch list now. Thank you for that, Darren. Phil, have you seen either of those? Yeah, so I've seen His House, and it, I put it into my top 20 films of last year. I thought it was excellent. It's a really, really good film. It does handle the asylum-seeking sort of aspects really well, and it is really scary. Darren's spot on when he's talking about the creepy um, ghost visuals. It's sort of one of the walls is sort of, crumbling and you can see the eyes sort of poking through the holes and stuff i don't often get jumpy at horror films but this one had me sort of jumping a bit so i really highly recommend it okay would you recommend that to graham and neil get get lost jeff not a chance yeah darren said really really scary twice (laughs) there's something about the film as well that i'd it's it's a feeling that I've not had in a lot of other horror films. Is everything is so understated, but it looks so real. 
you know, the, the, the ghost, it, it just seems like you are actually seeing these these ghosts. But there's, sort of, there's just something about them that just feels really realistic and solid about them. I can't really put my finger on it, but it is so well done. Definitely not, then. <laughs> no, no, it's definitely not. not to watch <laughs> definitely not. No, That's no. leapt up the list. Well, if Bill and Darren recommend it, I'm in, and I'm sure Neil and Graham are, even though they're playing coy. Yeah, dream on. Okay. <laughs> right, over to you, Graham. Thanks for that, Darren. Okay, as for next month, our pack schedule of releases include... A normal review show is back, well, as normal as it can be with Jeff here, as we pick the best from streaming. We have a review with an American director and another in our very popular Star Trek series. Okay, gentlemen, I can safely announce that's a wrap and another At The Flicks is in the can. And I've got to confess, in a late New Year's resolution, I promise to be nicer to Neil this year. (laughs) I cry bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, what about me? (laughs) Or do I once again have to rely on the kindness of the male? (laughs) And to everyone else, thanks for listening and goodbye. To make sure you never miss an episode of this podcast, please subscribe to At The Flicks at our website, at theflix.uk and if possible please remember to rate and review at the flicks wherever you get your podcasts you can contact the team on twitter or by email our contact details are also on our website at theflix.uk thanks for listening <laughs> <laughs>